I just thank you for your time, for our time in your word, Lord. Um, Father, how, uh, what a blessing it is, Lord, to just come together, God, just for edification, for to be built up in your word, to to get to know you, Lord. And Father, I, I just pray that um, you would show us tonight, Lord, just the kind of heart that you want us to have towards you, Lord. Even as David, your word says he was a man who it was after your heart, Lord God. We just pray in the name of Jesus that you would show us what a heart looks like that is a heart after you, Lord. And I just pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, for that you would touch my words and and just be with us this evening that we would just know your presence here among us, Lord. You, your word does say you're among us, Lord. We just pray that um, you would just confirm that in our hearts, Lord, even as we're here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're continuing through the book of First Samuel. And we are in First Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with, a bright eye, with bright eyes 
and was good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And so, uh, again, verse 1 says, now it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him uh, from reigning over Israel? Uh, we have, uh, last time we uh, sort of finished uh, chapter 15, where uh, Saul, after he was uh, ordered to eliminate completely the Amalekites, and, and Saul, uh, not only uh, did he not kill all the Amalekites, he uh, also kept a lot of the sort of the booty for himself, and uh, when Samuel catches up to him, it makes it very clear that the kingdom is going to be uh, taken away from him, and uh, and uh, while Samuel was leaving, Saul actually ripped his uh, ripped his robe. And in verse 28 of chapter 15, it says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Uh, and anyway, uh, they depart. And at the end of uh, chapter 15, it says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul unto the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Uh, it, and so... Chapter 16 begins with uh, Samuel uh, mourning over Saul, and Saul, Saul, um, and Samuel here is basically rebuked by the Lord. You know, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? And you know, it really was a reminder to me, even as I read this, that we really need to give people over to the Lord. I mean, how many times has there been someone in our life that, uh, you know, we, we just try and try and try uh, and, and they're not listening. You know, we try to bring them to the Lord. We're not listening. And, and, and you know, after a while, you know, it, it, it's just, we're just fleshing out. We're trying to bring them in single-handedly into the kingdom of God. And, you know, it gets to the point where... We need to really be honest with ourselves and the Lord and, and give control over the situation to Him and realize that God may or may not save them. God may choose not to save this person in your life. But one thing is for sure, you can't save them. And, and it's so important that we just settle that before the Lord. As, as awful a thought it is that certain loved ones in our life are, are not, you, you know, may not spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. As awful the thought of hell is for them, we need to settle in our heart that God is God. He's, he's the Lord. We need to, to, to trust Him. And, and here Samuel is just sort of prolonging his mourning, and he's almost in self-pity here. And it's gotten to the point where he was wasting his time, a time that God had prepared for him to go and, and get someone else. And it's, it's so true. Uh, I've learned this the hard way in ministry, that uh, when Steph and I were, were just um, 
just before the church started, she talked with Pastor Ken Graves up in Maine and asked for his advice. And she told, actually, she spoke with Pastor Ken Graves' wife, and she said just two things. One was love the people unconditionally, and the second was don't chase people in their sin. And, uh, uh, you know, four years into to ministry now, I, I really understand that because you will waste so much time chasing people in their sin if you insist on doing it. And you will be spending your time and effort and resources doing that when the Lord has someone else for you to be ministering to or something else. And so here uh, the Lord is telling Samuel, look, you're wasting your time, you know, mourning for this this guy. Uh, You need to go up and you need to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I provided myself a king amongst his sons. And then it says in verse 2, Well, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. And But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that seems a little strange. Is God involved in deception or something here? Uh, well, you know, we've we got to look at it in its context. And right before... Uh, in verse 29 of chapter 15, what does it say? A very oft-quoted verse. It says, also the strength of Israel, the rock of Israel, will not lie, nor relent. I think the NIV says, nor change. God cannot change. He cannot lie. That's a very, very oft-quoted verse right there. God doesn't change his mind. He does not lie. So God is, is not suggesting that he lie. What's going on here is that God is, is telling Samuel that it's not time to publicly proclaim David as the king. This was going to be a private ceremony. In fact, it's unclear when, in verse 13, when Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints David with it, it's unclear if even David really knows what's going on. Uh, he's doing it just in the presence of, uh, of Jesse and his, and his sons. Jesse and his sons certainly don't know what's going on. They're for they, what they probably think is going on is there were these schools of prophets that uh, you see actually throughout First Samuel and Second Samuel and, and the First and Second Kings, where they basically, uh, you know, had these I guess you would call them seminaries for for prophets, and they probably just thought that Samuel was anointing David uh, to be. Uh, a part of his band, but he what? Nowhere does it say you are king of Israel or anything like that. It was a private ceremony, so the Lord wants uh, Samuel to keep this a private ceremony, and he says, "Look, go and make a sacrifice to the Lord." And if you look uh, throughout the life of Samuel, this is the type that he, of thing that he did from time to time. He went to cities. He, there was a circuit, and he made sacrifices uh, in each of of the places. And so uh, he gets there, and he invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. And it says in verse six, "So when they came that, uh, so when they came, that is Jesse and his sons, uh, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him.' In other words, Samuel is saying, "Oh, this must be the one. God must want to anoint this guy Eliab." as the, uh, the next king of Israel. But then it says in verse 7, do not l- the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, 
because I have refused him. Actually, literally, it says, I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's pretty amazing to me, actually, that Samuel hadn't really learned from the lesson of Saul that you don't choose someone just according to their physical stature. Eliab apparently uh, was a, a man of some physical stature. He, he stood out. And uh, remember, Saul was a head above every other uh, man in Israel. And, and he had, uh, just to look at him, it was like, yeah, you, you know, that looks like someone uh, who can, can lead. And so here you have actually a prophet. And, you know, pastors, teachers, and other prophets ever since up to the present day have many times you, you know, you, you're in a very tough ministry or whatever and, and someone comes in very gifted and unfortunately sometimes the first reaction is, oh, yeah, i got to bring this person onto the ministry team. Well, that's not the way that God does things. He looks, what does it say, at the heart. He looks at character. And so then... Uh, it says in verse 11, it says, well, actually in verse 10, it says, Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Are all the young men here? So it was interesting, though, at, at, by, you know, Samuel is a man of God, obviously, and uh, he had had that check in his spirit saying, you know, don't look at the outward appearance. And he looks at all the... The, the seven sons, and he just doesn't have a peace. He doesn't have a peace at, at this point. And he asks them, you know, something must be wrong here. Have uh, you shown me all the sons? And as it turns out, no, he hadn't. And so he uh, sends for he he sends for David. And uh, it's interesting that. You know, obviously, man, uh, unfortunately, as it says in verse 7, man does look at the outward appearance. So did Jesse. I mean, Jesse thought so little of David, he doesn't even invite him to the sacrifice with Samuel. He's just completely cut out here. And so, uh, but anyway, he comes in and uh, David comes in. It says in, in verse 12, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means he was red, probably means red hair, with bright eyes and good-looking. And it's funny, that word good-looking, this is like, uh, before, there was such a sort of a military kind of world back then, you, you wound up getting scarred up eventually, uh, uh, um, any man usually did, because they would go to war and they don't have modern medicine like we do, and and... You know, just, it says, you know, he was young and he had bright eyes and good looking. He hadn't been scarred up by the sort of the, the, the battles, the literal battles of life. And it says there, it says, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So, he was anointed king of Israel there, even though nothing, he's, he doesn't say he, you're king or anything like that. It's unclear whether David knew what was going on 
you could probably say that by the fact that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he knew it was something, he, he, he knew something special was going on. Could be that he knew uh, that he had been anointed king. Uh, but uh, at this point, you know, he had been anointed and uh, God would start really leading him on the path to the throne uh, from this time onward. But I want to spend some time with David today because, you know, David was, he was established as the king of of Israel. And when his throne was established, so was the messianic line that eventually would lead to the birth of Christ. And David, as we'll see later, was in many ways a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus went through uh, the in, in Luke at, in the road to Emmaus and he's going through uh, the, the Bible with those two guys who are on the road to Emmaus and he says look the, the, the book of Moses and the prophets is about me uh, one of the, the people that he would have been sort of showing these two men was the life of David not only his Psalms which spoke directly about Jesus but uh, the actual life and, and so it's, it's so important that we, uh, we really look at, at, at David's life. And I want to just remind you of something we uh, talked about last time, and that is, you know, there's this amazing contrast between uh, David's life and Saul's life. In, in one sense, if you put the two together, if the two had to... Uh, you know, this is in, had to go before a human panel, and they had to sort of plead with the panel who led a more righteous life. Uh, as I said last time, there's a very good argument that Saul would win the argument. I mean, Saul could say, "Look, you know, I didn't like David. I didn't leave Israel and go into the land of the Philistines, who have murdered thousands, tens of thousands of." Uh, 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 of Israelites, I didn't go and live in their land and submit myself to one of their kings. David did that. He did that in 1 Samuel 27. He got fed up with just living as a, as a child of God, basically, and he went and he submitted himself to the king of Gath, and he lived basically among pagans and probably like a pagan for a full year. Saul could say, I never did something like that. Saul could say, you know, I never murdered a guy so that I could have his wife in adultery I, 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 or, or cover up my adultery with his wife. I never did that. You know, Saul could say about, about uh, comparing himself to David, you know, look at this guy's family. I mean, what kind of father was this guy? I mean, they're slitting each other's throats. One is raping another one of them. Another one tries to, to take over the kingdom. I mean, look at this guy. And uh, actually, Saul had a son who was one of the most outstanding examples of righteousness in the entire Bible. But what was the difference between the two? Again, it was the heart. It was the heart. It was the heart of David, where uh, again the Lord says in uh, says in verse seven there he says the Lord does not see as man sees 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The same thing was said in 1 Samuel 13 when Saul was, remember that when Saul was waiting for battle, uh, the Philistines were lined up against him. Some of his men were defecting. Samuel had told him to wait for seven days. He doesn't, Saul does not wait the, the whole seven days. Instead, he goes and he offers a sacrifice himself, something that only a priest should do. And, and Samuel comes to him and, and, and rebukes him and says, Now your kingdom shall not continue. Uh, he says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. It was the heart of David that distinguished David from Saul. And, you know, we, th- this continues right in through the rest of the Bible because the whole Sermon on the Mount, there's one issue that Jesus was trying to get across to the people. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. So we're going to spend some, uh, some time on David. Now, when David... Uh, I just want to, I just want for for a few minutes here to to use actually the 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 Psalm 23 as a, as an illustration of what this heart was like. What was the David's heart like? I mean, we would do well to to really study about what his heart was like that distinguished him from Saul. Well, you know, Psalm 23 says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." So. What does that really show? One, that shows a believing heart. That shows a believing heart. Uh, David knew he was born in sin. In another Psalm, Psalm 51, he says, In sin my mother conceived me. And so he knew that he, was, he needed grace and guidance in the guidance of God to watch over him and prosper him. He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, he believed in God to, to supply all his needs. He had a believing heart. It was the one thing that Saul didn't have. He was always failing to wait on the Lord. We, we brought up a number of examples of how Saul didn't wait on the Lord. In other words, and when you don't wait on the Lord, you're not believing on God to, to, to fulfill your need. He, David had a believing heart. Two, he had a grateful heart. What did he say in Psalm 23? You prepare uh, a table for me in the presence of my enemy and my cup overflows. You know, I hope that each one of us, each one of you, nurtures and prays for a, 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 not only a believing heart, but a grateful heart in your devotion time. I just strongly recommend beginning every time with the Lord, just remembering that your cup overflows, that God has tilled a vineyard for you. He has, uh, like we talked about this morning, He has remove the stones out of your life. He's dug up your heart. He's put a tower in place and a wine press, put a hedge around your life, and, and your cup overflows. And uh, Saul, on the other hand, what did it say in the previous chapter, chapter uh, uh, 15? He built a monument to himself. Doesn't show a very grateful heart. I mean, Saul may have had a good good son. He He may have been faithful to his wife. He may not have murdered his general. He may not have gone to live with the, the, the Philistines. But the problem is, he didn't have a grateful heart. And that is the thing that blesses God. A believing heart, a grateful heart. Third, he had a worshiping heart. David had a worshiping heart. This is really important. Uh, Psalm 23 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Every one of us, every one of you, needs to develop the 
habit of being quiet before the Lord. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, David knew how to be quiet before the Lord. With Saul, there was this picture of someone who was just always sort of, his mind was just always just too busy trying to figure out and figure out, you know, how he was in his own strength going to defeat the enemy. Do you remember the picture of Saul under the pomegranate tree where um, Jonathan eventually went out and defeated the Philistines, but Saul was under the uh, pomegranate tree. It says he was just stuck there, paralyzed, trying to figure out what he was going to do. He didn't know how to be silent before the Lord, quiet before the Lord. If we don't learn the, the, the habit of being quiet and silent before the Lord, uh, we, won't, we won't be worshipers. And Jesus said, what is the Father's looking for, for people to worship him in spirit and in truth? Uh, four, uh, David had a heart which longed for holiness. Uh, what, did it say in Psalm 20, what does it say in Psalm 23? He leads me on the path of righteousness. It also says in Psalm 118, it says, or Psalm 119, it says, I run in the path of your commands. He, he just, he wasn't always holy, but he sought after holiness. And, and I can tell you, the, the key to, to, to sort of a, a, a holy life is it's, it's seeking after the holiness because you're not going to be holy. You're not going to be able to be holy all the time, but God wants that heart after holiness, when you do fall, when you do stumble, like David stumbled with uh, Uriah and, and Bathsheba, he, he didn't lose that heart to just seek after God and be holy. And, and that, that uh, what is it, First um, Corinthians, or actually is it Second Corinthians chapter 7, that whole, uh, that whole description of what real repentance, that earnestness to, to get right with God, to, to seek after God, that zeal. And so a heart which longed for holiness. A heart that, fifth, number five, uh, it was he had a heart that did not give in to fear. He had a heart that was courageous. Now this is important. Uh, it says in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, w- I will fear no evil. Now, Fear is, you know, the fear, the Bible says, is a snare to man. Fear will completely bludgeon your walk with God. Fear will prevent you from moving on and doing what God wants you to do in your life. And it's, it's not really the fear that is wrong in your heart. It's acting out the fear because all of us are going to fear. But the, the question is, are we going to continue through the valley of the shadow of death in spite of the fear? And so what was wrong with Saul? He feared. Remember he, how much he feared man? When, when it, 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 says that, um, it, it says that he didn't wait that full seven days f- uh, with the Philistines, if I can remember correctly, because he feared the people. He feared their reaction. And, and, and so he went ahead and, and acted anyway. And so fear will kill your walk with God. But it says that David, he had a heart of courage. He had a heart that did not give in to fear. And remember, this is important. 
It says uh, again, 1 Samuel 15 or 16, verse 7, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outer, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is looking at your heart. So the question is this. Do you have a believing heart? Do you have a grateful heart? Do you have a worshiping heart? Do you have a heart that longs for holiness? Do you have a heart that does not give in to, to fear? A courageous heart. That's what God wants from your life. He's not interested in uh, a, a, in a sort of at the end of the week or whatever saying, you know, I just really obeyed all the commands this week, all the sort of the law of God. No, he's interested in a heart that is singularly seeking after him, seeking after him. Okay, so then in uh, chapter 16, uh, verse 14, we see sort of uh, the beginning of David being raised up. It says in 14, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hands when the distressing spirit from God is upon you. And you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. And so, uh, by this time, Saul, he is sort of in full rebellion, and he is, uh, he is disobeying the Lord. He's sort of given up walking with the Lord. Remember, two weeks ago, we talked about the concept of godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is the... Is factoring God into all your decisions. Well, he's he's given up doing that, and it's interesting. One of the things that you find uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter twenty-six. You don't have to turn there, but Leviticus chapter twenty-six, along with Deuteronomy twenty-eight, are one of those blessings and cursings chapters where God tells the nation of Israel all the things that are going to happen with them if they obey God. And all the blessings and all the curses that are going to happen if they disobey God. And one of the curses in Leviticus 26 is just, is basically you start going mad. You start, you start going crazy. And it says there that, um, you know, you'll hear the sound of a shaken leaf and it'll cause you to flee. So you'll be so crazy and fearful you'll think that like people are following you and 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 you'll you'll have a distressing spirit um uh, about you 
And this is one of the things that is going on with, uh, with Saul at this point. He has basically inherited this curse from Leviticus 26, and he's just, he, he's, he's basically nuts. Um, but uh, he brings David in to, to play the harp, and, and David was a worshiper. And that's why I, I just have always uh, stressed being in the Psalms to learn how to worship, and to learn how to worship God. Just going from one Psalm to, to so starting with Psalm 1, go to Psalm 150, and, and then when you're finished, start all over again because you really develop a sense of how to worship God. God's looking for worshipers. And so... Uh, uh, ironic that the, David comes into the king's household uh, first to refresh the spirit of Saul uh, with his harp and and just with you know his ability to worship. Okay, then we go into First Samuel chapter seventeen. It says, "Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle." And were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah. So that's an interesting little fact there that uh, the battle, when we're about to read about David and Goliath, uh, it happened in Judah. And remember, Jesus was the Lion of Judah, and David's family was uh, in the Lion of Judah, at the tribe of Judah uh, as well. And it says in verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So it's believed that um, sort of like the battle that Jonathan uh, was in, which we study in chapter 14, that there was some sort of cliff or ravine in between these two armies. And it says in verse 4, And a champion went out from among the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is 200 pounds. So... Imagine wearing a 200-pound uh, coat of armor around you and, and going out in the, in, into battle. And it says in verse 4, his height was six cubits in, in a span, and I think that's something like eight and a half feet, eight and a half feet high, a real, real tall dude. In verse 6, it says, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And so there's this guy, he's covered with bronze on his helmet, on his chest, on his legs, and, you know, shining in the sun. I mean, it must have been just this incredibly terrifying sight uh, because, you know, the sun just uh, shining and reflecting uh, off the bronze there. It says in verse 7, Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to the lineup for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine? And are you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all the Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so it says in verse 16 that he continued this for 40 days, morning and evening, just provoking uh, the children of God. And it says uh, in verse 21 again, it says, For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And then it says uh, that, that David, who had come from his father carrying with him food uh, to uh, his brothers, you know, saw, saw this going on. And, you know, it's interesting. We hear lots of stories about battles and whether it's this battle or World War II or I was just looking at the History Channel on the airplane on JetBlue coming back from Florida and it was about Napoleon and, you know, his gigantic armies going all around Europe. And what a lot of people don't realize is one of the uh, most difficult things to do in any time of war is providing provisions to all the men who are going into to battle. I mean, they got to eat something. And how do you get that to them? How do you get the food to them? How do you keep it fresh? And, how, you know, and, and here you see what apparently was, was the method that one of the methods that Israel used that families were responsible for their own families in battle. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, the, it's like the United States government gives all the um, army its provisions. It, it wasn't really like that. Uh, for really thousands of years. Here you see uh, David uh, carrying food to his own brothers who are in battle. And so he sees this thing, and again it says in verse 24, it says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the Goliath, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Actually, the Hebrew said it's sore afraid. So we talked about that uh, verse or that word a couple uh, weeks ago, so afraid. It, they were so afraid it hurt. It hurt them. You know, this, this eight and a half foot giant and, you know, he, with 200 pounds of armor on him and, and the sun is just shining off him and he looks like, you know, he, to, to at least a pagan, he looks like a god. And, uh, and, and uh, he's up there and he's just provoking him. And, and David says in, in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And um, it says in verse 28, when Eliab, his older brother, heard him, he w- his anger was aroused, and he says, why did you come down here? You know, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And, uh, and, and, but, but David keeps, keeps going from sort of from group to group, saying, you know, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, this is almost like the Holy Spirit just provoking people, saying, What's, this guy's uncircumcised. 
He, he, in other words, he doesn't have a covenant relationship with the living God. What, why is he doing this? Why are people uh, allowing him to, to do this? And, and what happens next is uh, Saul finds out that David uh, actually has, has apparently the courage to go out against him. Saul uh, brings him to him, lends him his armor. David doesn't want the armor. David uh, gets just some, uh, some, uh, some stones. And you know, Saul, Saul has said to him, you know, what, what, what makes you think you're going to go up against this guy? And, he, and Saul said, uh, or David said, well, I've gone up against the bear and I've gone up against the lion and, and, uh, and the Lord delivered me. Uh, from them, and so he will deliver this this giant into my hand. And so David grabs a, a, a few uh, stones, and in verse forty-two it says, "When the Philistines saw David, he disdained him." In other words, he looked at just with utter contempt at him, uh, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. Again, his face hadn't been scarred by battle yet. And verse forty-three. It says, so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then he says, and come to me now and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And, and David said to him, you know, you come, to, you come against me with sword and spear. I will come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And, uh, and, and then he says in verse 7, 47 he says then all this assembly says, when, when, when I beat you and when the birds of the air are eating your carcass the, they says the whole assembly shall know the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands and so D- David shoots his sling kills him verse 50 it says so David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and a stone and then the, the Israelites arose and uh, shouted in verse 52 and pursued the Philistines. And uh, then it says they plundered their tents. They plundered their tents. And so, uh, you know, this... Uh, this is a theme, actually, that uh, we've seen the last uh, few chapters, last six chapters, actually, where... Uh, the, the nation of Israel is, they, they've gotten to this point where they're just completely living a defeated life. Uh, but anyway, it, it, you know, it's interesting that the, it says that Goliath was from, from Gath. And in Joshua 11, if you look at Joshua 11, it actually refers to the descendants of Anak, which were, which were uh, giants there. And... Uh, the one thing that I just want to really try to bring out today, you know, there's been many uh, sermons on uh, this very subject. I think Scott actually had a sermon on this uh, a couple months ago, the David against Goliath. Um, but the, the one thing that uh, I really want to, to center on here, uh, is focus on here, is uh, the very interesting sort of thing going on here where Goliath is calling for one representative to represent Israel and Goliath sees himself as a representative of the Philistines and publicly declares that whatever happens to him will happen to uh, 
the, the people who follow him and whatever happens to whatever representative of Israel will happen to uh, the rest of the Israelites. And so, uh, you know, as Jesus is going on the road to the mass with those two guys, he could very well be uh, uh, pointing here where Goliath here is a type of Satan. David is a type or a foreshadowing of, of, of Christ. Now, you could scarcely imagine a more striking picture of Satan uh, and his power. You, you know, Satan, and it speaks also uh, about the Antichrist, uh, who's not Satan, but he certainly is representative, that it's, you know, Satan's not this ugly, incredibly satanic-looking figure that you see in the horror flicks. He's a mighty, powerful, sometimes even beautiful uh, figure. And, and here, uh, this is a type of Satan. And just like the Antichrist who's going to persuade people just by his, his natural appearance and his charisma, you know, here there's this man who has, who's basically mesmerized everyone just by his physical appearance. And, and really, he's far too powerful than any human being can stand against. Goliath was far too powerful for any single human being to stand against. And, and uh, you know, we're in a very similar kind of uh, battle in, in, in many senses today where, you know, you don't necessarily see Satan in the form of a, a Philistine soldier, but it's, it's, it's really, and in, in, in Satan really takes on a variety of forms today where he is someone that no single human being can battle against. I just think of the academic institutions uh, really in this city where, you know, you have uh, these, you know, you don't have this, this eight and a half foot, eight and a half foot uh, pound it, it, and eight and a half uh, feet, uh, foot giant with 200 pounds of, of armor on. But what you have are, are, are modern-day academic institutions with the entire world uh, gazing upon them in admiration. It has all the professors, all the wisdom, all the money, all the respect uh, that uh, it gets in, the, uh, that gets in the, the press. And what does it do? It just mocks just mocks the church and and it's just amazing how the press will uh, or, or these academic institutions will use the press just to to mock the church and so often time the reaction of the church is just like Israel they, they sort of cower and they're 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 afraid and they don't really know how to react and you know what are we going to do and and the assumption always is oh I guess we got to mobilize a debate and, and get someone to debate them, or, or we got to, uh, you know, go to our textbooks and come up with a, a clever argument about, you know, why we're right and they're wrong, and, 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 um, it, and it really is, you know, we've been seeing this picture in the book of First Samuel, and, and we've got to really, really strongly consider and, and realize that we don't want to be like them. I mean, I think of 1 Samuel chapter 11 with Saul and the Ammonites. The one good chapter Saul had in, the, in his whole life, and it was a great uh, chapter, where at the beginning, you know, the Ammonites went to the Israelites and said, you know, well, this, actually, the Israelites went to them and said, can we serve you? Ammonites said, sure. Just, we have to pluck out all your right eyes. 
And they said, okay, wait seven days and we'll come back and tell you whether we want to let you pluck our eyes out and serve you. And uh, uh, it says that they went and they just wept. They went to a corner and they just wept. So, again, a def- the, the, the picture there is just a defeated people. And then, uh, of course, when Saul found out, he got angry and he, and he attacked them. But then the same thing in 1 Samuel 14 where there was, uh, there was what does it say, 10,000 chariots or something like that and 50,000 men and there was only, uh, there was only like 700 Israelites or something like that. And, and, and it says the people were just sore afraid and they were, they were, uh, de- they were defecting from the army. And, and then that's when um, Jonathan actually raised up. And then here again, you see the same thing where for 40 days, day and night, Goliath provoking the armies of Israel. And it says that they were, it says they were extremely afraid. And, and so, but the whole reason I'm bringing this up is we need to remember that we can't be lured into doing the same thing that the, the Israelites did in all those occasions that, that, that somehow we got to go man for man up against, for example, these huge academic institutions and that's that's how we're going to beat them. We got to go out and we got to start like a Christian university that's going to, you know, be raised up and it's going to be the most philosophical and intellectual and powerful institution on the face of the earth and then we'll crush them. I mean, you know, that's that's exactly the type of mentality that gets us in 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 bondage to fear because we know in our hearts that we're not going to be able to defeat them. And, and again, Goliath was a type of Satan who he, he was trying to, he was provoking the people and getting them to fear. And he was, uh, you know, using this fear in their life and the lie that they had to go up against him in their natural strength. And that's always what Satan does to uh, provoke fear in your heart. He tries to convince you that in order for you to succeed in life, you're going to have to be the smartest, most successful, most beautiful, you know, most athletic person. That's the only way you're going to have success. That's the only way you're going to. That's the only way you're going to defeat me. Or that's the only way you're going to be successful in life. And so, but but what does David do now? David again is a type. Of Christ, he's a foreshadowing of Christ. He just comes in. And he doesn't even understand what's going on. He's like, I don't understand. There's an uncircumcised giant out there, meaning there's a guy who's who worships pagan gods that don't even exist, and he is just making all of you people cower in fear. What is going on here? And he was going from group to group to group, and and, and people were just getting mad at him. He's going to get out of our face. And, and, and yet, just like Jonathan, it, two chapters before, at the exact same thing, his reaction was what any Christian should be. Look, I don't know how we're going to defeat these people, but let's, let's defeat them the way that God tells us to defeat them, just moving on by faith and see what God's going to do. And, and Jonathan's situation was in many respects even more admirable than David's because Jonathan was going up against 10,000 chariots and but he said I obviously we can't let this uncircumcised nation just defeat us so 
I'm just going to go all by myself with my armor bearer and see what God does. Because obviously, it's, it, you know, God doesn't want this to happen. Let's see what God's going to do. And so uh, David does the same thing with Goliath. He's a Goliath. He's, um, he's a, a, a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of, of uh, what, um, what Jesus uh, would be like. And I just want to point out uh, several other types of several other ways. Remember, remember David established the messianic line. And, and so, um, as always, even through the Mosaic law and through the prophets and, 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 and through the, the kings that were righteous, the people would look to them and they would see, even at the time, they would see a type of the eventual Messiah, the character of the eventual Messiah, or that through the events of David's life, they would they would be able to see, uh, you know, what the Messiah would look like. Remember, David. Let me mention just a few other parallels here. David was sanctified by the Spirit. Remember, we just read after Samuel anointed him, we are told in verse thirteen of chapter sixteen that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So there was. Um, Remember, there was also a day in the life of the Lord Jesus when after his baptism, obviously, you remember, he was baptized and as it says, immediately after he got up, this spirit of the Lord came upon him and descended upon him as a dove. And so he was anointed before he went out into public ministry. He was anointed by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, also, another parallel, we read in 1 Samuel seventeen seventeen that David was sent by his father to the battlefield. This is a very interesting parallel as well. Now, where was he sent from? He was sent from a, a, a place that in many respects, although there were lions and bears out there, it was a place of, of safety with the sheep, and it was isolation. He was isolated. He was by himself. He wasn't, around, he wasn't in the middle of the battle. And he was sent from there right into the battlefield. Well, where did Jesus... I mean, the Bible says that the Father sent Jesus into the world and Jesus came from, from heaven, that, that home, that place of security in his life. Uh, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, um, though he existed in the form of God or that he was by his very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he came and took the form of the man. And so, and, and, and yet another parallel, we find that um, when David arrived at the scene uh, of the battle, he was scorned by his brethren. And v- verse 28 there in chapter 17, Eliab is just like mocking him. What are you doing here? I mean, who are you? Uh, you you're, you're, it says you're filled with pride and insolence. And uh, the very same thing happened uh, to Jesus. We, we talked about that actually this morning. Uh, you know, how dare you, Jesus, let the children in the temple sing out to you, Hosanna in the highest. How dare you? Stop them. <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and, and then, uh, speaking of mockery, when he was mocked by the Roman guards, they put a purple robe on him, they put a thorns around his head, and they gave him a staff, and then they bowed down to him. Happened to our Savior. That's, uh, that, that's a... a an awful thought, but just as David was mocked, uh, Jesus was mocked too. And we also find that David was prepared by a life, uh, you know, for a life with God quietly. There was this quiet preparation period, uh, and but also that he was prepared, 
you Scott's sermon a couple months ago was that notice before David went and battled Goliath, he had also defeated the bear and the lion before then. And, you know, that's a great message for our own life. Before we think we can be thrown to the Goliaths, I, I find this particularly with men. I know this because I've had this problem myself. I want to go, when I became a Christian, I want to, I want, I want to go right to Goliath. Well, the problem was I had never defeated the bear or the lion or even a, a guinea pig, you know. And, 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 and so, but, but um, and, you know, when people come into the church and they want to, they want to you know, they want to immediately start teaching or something, you know, we always tell them the same thing. You know, you got to start uh, with sweeping the floors, not with, um, not with a pulpit. But, but anyway, but Jesus had that same sort of quiet preparation period where God was preparing him. And before he went out into a public ministry, what did he do? Uh, he, he didn't, not, not only did he defeat the bear and the lion, he actually defeated the devil uh, in, in the wilderness. He was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. And uh, one of my favorite teachings was that, that teaching on, on Matthew chapter 4 where, uh, you know, the devil thought he was going to do to Jesus just the same thing. He, he thought it was going to be just as easy as it was with Adam and Eve. He was just going to stroll up and, uh, and he was going to uh, tempt uh, Jesus and actually tempt him using the same kind of temptations, the uh, uh, that uh, he used with Eve. It was the pride of, of life. It was, don't you want to be like God? It was, boy, that's really the pride of the, or the lust of the eyes. Boy, that apple looks real good. Tried three times, and, and Jesus just slam dunked, basically, uh, the situation, and, and, and Satan uh, departed. So uh, Jesus defeated the bear and the lion before going into a public uh, ministry. But the most important thing is this about the parallel, and that is, remember what happened. Uh, Goliath said, you bring me one man, and if I defeat this man, you guys win. If I win, you know, we win, the Philistines win. And Jesus Christ was the sole representative, really, of of the entire uh, Christian uh, of the entire human race, but also the Bible also talks about him being the representative of the church, that he died for the church, he gave his blood up for the church, and because of his victory, all of us, all of us are the beneficiaries of it. And, and I always go uh, to, to Romans chapter 6, why don't we turn there, uh, in order to in order to just bring home that truth, Romans chapter 6. It's interesting before we read this that, you know, the same thing can be said of the devil. You know, the same thing that's going to, just as the same thing that happens to Jesus is going to happen to all his followers, there's going to be victory and there's going to be heaven. The same thing's going to happen to, uh, to, the, to all the followers of Satan that they're going to have the same end that he is. Because the, 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 the Bible does say in Revelation that they're all going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But uh, in Romans chapter 6, and I always, this is just, was such an important uh, scripture to the sort of the beginning of my Christian life because I was really able to, to, to discover not only 
that I was saved from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin for one reason, and that is because Jesus, Jesus, and what he did for me on the cross. It says, and, and by the way, we always read this to people getting baptized. In verse 3 it says, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So because Jesus died and was resurrected, it says that we, we by faith, can unite ourselves with him. In other words, we can see ourselves on the cross with him dying. And just as he was resurrected, we can, we can identify with that. Because he was victorious, we are victorious. Verse 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he le- lives, he lives to God. Now, here's what's important. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but al- alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, w- we can identify with, with Christ's death and resurrection. And because he won the battle... We have won the battle. And so David was a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of, of Christ. And what would happen uh, when, uh, when Jesus, just as David was victorious over Goliath, Jesus was, was victorious over Satan on the cross. And, and on the third day when he rose again, he was victorious over death. And we can, we're the beneficiaries um, of Jesus' triumph, even as the Israelites were the beneficiaries of, of David's victory. Praise God. Okay. Well, let's... Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to dismiss now, and if anyone would like to pray, can come back in 10 minutes and pray with us. If you're tired and want to go home, God bless you. We don't want to stop you. We all need our beauty sleep. But if you'd like to, um, you know, those of you who are beautiful. <laughs> but um, but, it, um, but if you'd like to stay and pray, we do have um, a couple things we'd like to pray about. Actually, Scott, do you know what round of prayer we're on right now? Okay. So, Kirk, can you get the Gospel for Asia cards? We're going to pray for the Gospel... Uh, for Asia, missionaries that we support in India. Also, we had a, a woman come by tonight who has a little girl children's hospital with a brain tumor. The, uh, I think the girl's name is Olalisa, Olalisa Zapata. So try to remember that name. If you can't, it's okay, but Olalisa is her name. And then we also had in the back here, but they had to leave Albert, another young boy who's at Children's Hospital, 
uh, let's remember to, to pray for him uh, as well. So God bless you. And if, uh, if you'd like to come back and pray with us in 10 minutes, the women will be over there and the men will be here. You're dismissed.